unmute himself. You there, John? Yes, yes, I am, Matt. Great, there you are. Uh, just, just really quickly, because um, John and I are going to be doing the podcast this week. I'm going to be interviewing John and asking him about various things, including what he's up to in making a program about Welsh awakenings. So you're going to have to wait and hear about that this week. So he's obviously a busy, uh, busy guy. Got plenty going on. John, just to ask about the church, though, um, for you as Cornerstone Abergavenny, are you back meeting in your school yet, or are you online, or what? What's happening there? No, so we're we're still online at the moment. Um, so as we speak, they've just started, and we've got uh, the amazing Tom King preaching this morning. Um, so you probably want to pop over there if you want. Harvest.org. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we're still um, live streaming from the church offices. Um, yeah, we'd love to get back. There's a real desire to get back, but um, the joy of having rented accommodation and the limits of space. I um, mean, at the moment, that's just not really possible. We're looking at maybe starting back some kind of afternoon or evening service on Easter Sunday. That's that's the hope at the moment. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll wait and see. Well, yeah, kind of feel, feel your pain there, feel the longing as well. Very, very similar position we we're in. But um, how can we, apart from around the logistics of that, anything in particular we could be praying for Cornerstone um, this coming week or weeks? Yeah, outreach. So our, um, we've been running an alpha course on Zoom, so that's coming to an end. Um, so it'd be wonderful. Uh, there's one lady in particular, it'd be wonderful to see her um, come to faith. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's our longing is um, that we would see people. It's hard to tell because we're on YouTube, not Zoom. We can't see who's there. Um, so we're not aware always who's watching and, and who's listening. But we definitely know anecdotally from members of the church that there are more relatives kind of listening in now than before. I think because they can come anonymously. Um, so it would be, yeah, it would be wonderful to see people come to faith. That would be, yeah, the big prayer. Yeah. Well, let, let me pray for you now, John, and then it's over to you to preach first. Thank you. Lord, thank you for bringing John along to us. We pray you'll bless Tom and help him as he uh, preaches for Cornerstone. Um, help John and, and uh, just undertake for him so that he's got real freedom and clarity of thought as to what you are saying to us through your word. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Cornerstone. We thank you for them. As we pray that you'll bless them this morning, uh, we pray also that you'll lead them forward in the weeks that lie ahead, that they too, like us, will soon be able to be all together worshipping you as church family. Uh, we pray for those who've been on the Alpha course, just as we pray for those who were on our Christianity Explored course, that you will continue to speak to them. Lord, we long to see people bowing the knee to Jesus and coming to know the joy that he brings to their lives. So we commit all those people to you and thank you for your goodness. I pray that you'll speak to us now and help John as he speaks. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, it's really good um, to be with you. Um, kind of even over screen it's just lovely to be able to see you as well um, over zoom lots of old friends and, and new friends um, it's really good to see you along for the day surely as you do when uh, we can sing together and then have uh, a cup of coffee and a biscuit together afterwards and a catch-up um, who thought we'd ever long for church coffee huh um, but there we are I'm looking forward to it well, this morning we're in Psalm 19. Uh, C.S. Lewis claimed that this was the greatest poem in the Psalter. Um, so it's a, it's a psalm of David, um, probably inspired by his days sitting on the hillside watching the sky as a shepherd boy. That's how I tend to think of it. And the psalm is split into three sections that we're going to walk through. Um, so verses one to six looks at common grace and the constellations cry out. 
Verses 7 to 10 look at special grace, how the scriptures sweeten the soul. And then verses 10 to 14 look at the means of grace, how we wonder at the word in the word. But I'll walk through those um, three points with you if you didn't get quite a chance to, to write those down. The first thing you see in Psalm 19 is common grace. The constellations cry out, verses 1 to 6. Now, I don't know what you think the best view you've ever seen is. Now, for me, um, I think my favourite view is, you know, when you're driving to North Wales, uh, you go through Machynlleth, you go up past Corwen, and as you get to the top of the hill, over the lip, you see Cadridris. Um, There is a phenomenal view of Cadridris. I don't know what it is, but every time I see it, um, my my heart just sings. I, I love it. Um, but even in lockdown, being stuck in Abergavenny um, for a year, it's a lovely place to be stuck. stuck. Um, I've loved looking at the Blorinch um, from my house. You can just go out. Um, and every day I love looking at, at the Blorinch. Um, when I was younger, I lived in Aberystwyth. And I used to love going down onto the prom, particularly in the evening, watching the sunset as the sun sizzled into the sea. Or you could turn around and see the way that all of the windows on the prom had turned like a glowing orange uh, with the sunset reflecting. I, I just love um, those views. And verse one is clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is glorious. He has great worth and the creation shows us the worth of the creator. And it shows us not only his creation, but him himself. So it says halfway through verse one that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's amazing. And and the creation in some senses speaks on behalf of the creator. So verse two, he's able to say day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Now, what does this mean? Um, Well, it means that the heavens tell us that there is a God in heaven and a glorious God. That's what creation does. It tells us that there is a God in heaven and a glorious God. Um, Sometimes some people think of it like a kind of a watchmaker. Um, You've probably heard uh, the illustration. Someone's walking along one day in a world, you know, where there's perhaps no watches. And if you found a watch on the floor and you picked it up and you looked at the glass on the front and the cogs inside and the metalwork and the leather strap and the kind of beauty of it and the kind of engineering of it, you would wonder who made such an amazing thing. And it's exactly the same with, with creation. So, Paul is able to say in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. But we need to be careful that we don't take this too far. Creation is amazing and it tells us loads of stuff. But look at verse 3, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. So creation speaks in a wordless way. They can point to things, but they can't explain things. That's what creation does. Creation points to God, but it can't fully explain God. You can look at a sunset and you feel something of the greatness of God. Or in the middle of the night, um, I live in a kind of area of... Um, night sky beauty. Um, So you can go out in the night and you can look up and you can see the stars. Um, And there's something about it, isn't it? In the middle of the night, 
looking up, seeing the stars, that intuitively lets you know that, that you are small and God is great. So creation is for everyone, everywhere. You see it there in verse four. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. No matter where you are in the world, you can see something of God in creation. And then he says there's one part of creation that is particularly amazing. Halfway through verse four, he says it's this. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, the sun. And so in verse five, he says that it's the sun really that is the ultimate evidence for God. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. There's something amazing about the sun. And, and what's amazing about the sun, different really from the rest of creation, um, is that you can't just see it, but you can feel it. It's warmth. It's, it's life giving. It's amazing, verse 6, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So the heavens and the sun in particular are superb for signposting to God, but they're not sufficient for salvation. So if you go back to Romans 1 and I give you the quote in full, it says this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So these are a part of common grace. It's a gift that is common to all, but it's not a saving grace. You can't look at creation and be saved. It's pointing you to something greater. I love the fact that all of those things, though, all of creation says this, nothing is deprived of the warmth of the sun. It's superb, but it's not sufficient. It can show us there's a God, but it can't save us for God. No, no, we need something more. And so whilst we have common grace, secondly, we have special grace. We have special grace. The scriptures that sweeten the soul, verses seven to nine. Now, David here makes a seemingly jarring move, uh, like a classic preacher where you're talking about one thing and then you completely kind of shoehorn something else in. And so is this two Psalms that have been put together? Well, no, actually, there's a link. You see, we've seen the superb sun and felt its warmth, but we've also seen there's a setback. It's not sufficient for salvation. And so David, in his mind, I think, goes like this. The warmth of the sun reminds me of the warmth of the scriptures. Or the speechless words of creation remind me that there's a speech full word of the canon, the Bible. You see, in the Bible, we find special grace, a grace that offers a salvation that changes everything. And so when you read through the next section, you've got to have the sun in mind. The imagery that he's using is very sun imagery. And so he's going to give us a long list of descriptions, characteristics and results of the Bible, benefits of uh, the Bible. You look through it and it's it's an amazing array of words and images. He says, verse seven, he calls it the law. Now, when I think of law and I'm sure when you think of law, we think of something like the law kills. But no, what does he say? The law is perfect. In fact, look at what he says. It's not only perfect, verse seven. It refreshes the soul. The laws contained in the Bible really do refresh the soul. Think of the things that really get you down in life. 
What's one of the things that ruins society, ruins families, ruins the workplace more than anything else? I would say it would be unforgiveness, bitterness, grudges. That's, I think, one thing that gets us down more than anything else in life. A dog-eat-dog world. It's where you've got to make the next move and you've got to stab at the people in the back. And the Bible says, forgive your enemies, love your neighbour. How refreshing is that? It's so different to everything else in the world. You don't have to live in bitterness. You don't have to live in unforgiveness. You can actually forgive. The laws of the Lord are refreshing. Goes on in verse 7 and calls them statutes, rules, the statute books. Um, we live in a strange time. I've got to be really careful what I say now politically, but I'm, I'm not your pastor, so I can kind of get away with it, can't I? Um, but as I see screens turns off, I know what's going on. Um, but but we, we live in a place where we're part of the United Kingdom, but we have a, a you know a devolved, partly devolved uh, government in, in Wales. And there's statutes left, right and centre. And during the pandemic, you know, there has been times where we've had different kind of rules and statutes between England and between us. And it gets a little bit confusing. And, and sometimes I've, you know, discussed with friends. I've got some friends who are going, well, I'm so glad I live in Wales. It's so much better. And I've got other friends because we're right on the border here where they go, I wish we could move five miles across the border because it's much more sense there. The statutes um, are there. And very often there's a whole issue then of just not trusting. Do we trust the rules they're making? Do we trust the statutes? Well, the wonderful news here is the statutes in the Bible, what does he say, verse 7? They are trustworthy. They are trustworthy. Wouldn't it be lovely to live in a world where you can trust every statute? And it makes us wise. The Bible is full of great rules. And he reiterated, verse 8, he goes on and talks about precepts. These are rules for life and, and how we live. And he says, look, these rules for life are right. You know, sometimes there are things in life which are rules and precepts and laws which are right. Um, so probably, again, I know there's debate on this, um, but probably, you know, uh, aspects of or all of, whichever you want to believe. Again, you can talk to Matt about this. Um, of, of lockdown has been right. But even if it's been right, you know, talking to older members of my church, we've got a large over 70 population in our church. And whilst they all agree that they should have shielded over the last winter, they found it really hard. It's been right, but it hasn't felt good. It's made them sad. It's been really difficult for them. And so what does it do, though? Look at the words of the Bible, verse 8. It's completely different. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Wouldn't that be wonderful to live in society where every precept gives joy to the heart? Well, the Bible, the laws, what the Bible teaches gives joy to the heart. They are amazing. You see, the Bible's laws and precepts, they're not restricting they're rejoicing, they're joy giving. He goes on halfway through verse eight, he talks about commands. Again, these can have negative connotations, but he uses the word radiant. The commands of God are radiant. He's thinking here of the sun, just as the sun gives warmth. So they are radiant and they give light to the eyes. And so a right response to the word and, and the God revealed in the word, verse nine, is fear. 
but a fear of the Lord that is pure, a fear of the Lord that is enduring, a fear that says, you are my father who is in control and you have everything and you want everything that is best for me. And that gives a kind of filial, a love kind of fear. It's not like the rules in my house. Um, when I make rules in my house, they tend to last about three hours. That's it. The Xbox is gone. You're not having it for another two weeks. Two hours later, dad needs to do some work, play on the Xbox. And, and that kind of changing of rules kind of brings chaos. All the kind of child psychologists, you know, are going, don't change the rules, give them consistency. And the wonderful thing about God is in his rules and in his statutes in the Bible, they are consistent. They are enduring. He doesn't change. It's an amazing thing about God. And this means that verse 9, the decrees, the decisions of God, they are completely unchanging. They're firm. They're righteous, he says in verse 9. Which means, verse 10, that the Bible is more precious than gold. More precious than bitcoins lost in a rubbish dump in Newport. They are amazing. They are worth everything. And they are sweet to the taste. Here's the question. How are the commands and rules and precepts of God so sweet, so good, so enduring? It's because it's not so much about what the rules are as to who gives the rules. That's what makes rules all different. It's not so much about what the rules are, but who gives the rules. And these are the rules of God, the one who has created everything and so much more. There's a movement in the psalm in terms of God. I don't know if you noticed it. It's, it's the way David refers to God, and there's a deliberate movement. So in verse 1, he talks about God as God. That's, that's El. So that's uh, the creator God, the cosmic God, the out there God. The heavens declare the glory of God, God out there. But in verse 7, there's a movement. He calls him Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, the saviour, the God who comes here. The amazing thing for the Christian is um, if we trust in Christ, in his word, there is the laws of our covenant God. And the covenant is based on what he has done first, not on what we do for him. He is our Yahweh, our, our saviour. Now, we need to do a step here with, with the psalm. And when, and when we're reading and studying the psalm, this is always really important to remember. So when David writes the psalms, in effect, he writes as a type of Christ. That doesn't mean that everything that David does, Jesus does. We know that the sin with Bathsheba um, and so forth. We, we know that's not the case. But in terms of being the anointed king, in terms of being the one in the line who someone on his line of descent will sit on the throne and be the Lord, it means that within this psalm, it is looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment, to the ultimate king, Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, it's always good to remember that these are Jesus's psalms. He would have sung them, he would have memorized them, he would have known them. And so there's a sense in which the psalm reflects Jesus. So verse 11, it talks them, uh, talks um, about being able to, to keep the word. Keeping them, there is great reward. Well, there's only one who's ever truly kept 
the Bible, all the rules and all the commands. There's only one who really deserves the reward, and that's Jesus. He is the man of Psalm 1. He's the blessed one. And the wonderful thing is, is that when Jesus came and kept these rules, the great reward he got was a reward for us. He did it in our place, in our stead, as our representative. And so it's because of him, because he has kept the rules, that we are now brought into a relationship with a father. And so the rules and and the teachings of the Bible are our father's rules and teachings, who has given everything for us. And so when we read these Psalms, they are ultimately all about Jesus. And we know, don't we, that the the covenant, we're talking about the covenant God here of the Old Testament. Well, the covenant God crescendos on the cross. That's the ultimate place where Yahweh is seen. You see, if you're a Christian this morning, the Bible isn't just from the creator and it isn't just from a cosmic God. No, no. The Bible is from the creator who stepped into creation. The Bible is from the cosmic God who came and hung on a cross. So think about it like this. The creation is amazing, especially the sun, S-U-N, because the sun is life-giving. But the Bible is even more amazing because the sun, S-O-N, is eternal life-giving. We need to come to a point as believers to look at the sun, see how amazing the sun is in the sky, that it gives us life, no sun, no life, and realise that the sun, S-O-N, is even greater. You see, everything in creation has been made by God to make you think. I don't know if you realise this. It's quite amazing. Everything in creation has a reason. And it isn't just a random, they are created and we have a creation created God. There's actually even more. Even the rocks have specific reasons. I won't get into this now because you'll all get a little bit freaked out. Um, but the sun has a specific reason. And it is to show us the Lord Jesus. To look at the sun and to realise there is a greater one who can shine on us. That we can see his face. So how do we respond to this? Well, thirdly, we need to see the means of grace. We need to learn to wonder at the word, how the Lord Jesus is described in John 1, in the word, the Bible. We see it in verses 10 to 14. Uh, Here, David turns very personal. He refers to himself now in verse 13 as the servant. Keep your servant. Again, in verse 11, by them your servant is Warned. That servant word is covenant language there. He is now a servant of God. And I love the way Dale Ralph Davis puts it in his little book on the Psalms. He says, he doesn't just want you to see what Yahweh's word is like. He wants you to say, I must have it. I must have it. It's like when, when someone shows you their holiday photos and you're so impressed, you're just going at the end, I really want to go there. I really want to go there. Or someone reads a book and tells you about it. And at the end, you just go, I've got to get that on my Kindle now. I've got to get the audio book now. I really want to read that book. And and in effect, David wants us to see the amazing creation, then see the word. And he wants us to respond with, I've really got to read this. I've really got to get into it. So how do you respond? Well, verse 10, we should learn to seek the word. He says, the word is more precious than gold, much more pure than gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. 
It's something we should covet. There's, there's lots of things I am coveting at the moment. I don't know about you. Um, you're very fortunate. So I may be surrounded by beautiful mountains, but you're close to the sea. And I am very jealous um, because you can cycle down to the sea. You can go um, to the seafront in a socially distanced, safe manner within your allotted exercise from your front door, just to put it out there before I'm misquoted. And it is amazing. I, I genuinely cannot wait um, to get to the sea and to watch a sunset and have a barbecue on the beach. Um, I am desperate for that. And we should feel the same about getting into the word of God. We should seek the Lord in the Bible because when we read the Bible, we meet Jesus. And we should savour the word. That's what he says halfway through verse 10. He talks about it like honey, like honey from a, from a honeycomb. Um, you know, like something that tastes so good, you just want to take your time and, and you slow down. One of my favourite films from many years ago, probably before some of you were born, um, was the film Chocolat. You've probably read the book. That shows my culture, isn't it? I, I like the film. You've probably read the book. And there's a scene in there where they have this chocolate-filled meal. It sounds brilliant, doesn't it? And, and, you know, on the one hand, you think, this is going to be the most boring scene of the entire film, watching people eat. But the way they savour the chocolate and the food is just phenomenal. And there's a sense in which that's how we should be with, with the Bible. And unfortunately, I think, because we live in a really busy world and life is very busy, and I completely get that. Me and my wife both work. We've got three kids. I, I understand an element of busyness, and I'm sure most of you are even more busy than me. You've been teachers working from home, trying to teach from home and teach your own kids at the same time, or doctors doing incredible shifts in PPE, or, you know, frontline workers, you know, or grandparents who have to work harder than everybody. You know, whatever it is you're doing, I understand the busyness, and, and the word can become a kind of drive-through McDonald's. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, we know we need something and, and, and we read it in a bite-sized way, but, but in the end, it's kind of just, it leaves us wanting more. And we need to learn to somehow to savour the word. And, and that doesn't have to be length of time sitting down reading. Um, it can be starting to listen to the word audibly with uh, David Suchet. Um, it can mean meditating on a single verse or, or a psalm throughout the day and, and memorising it. And, and in those perhaps more mundane moments, bringing those words to, to bear. It means perhaps sitting down and reading the word as you would a novel where you read a book of the Bible in one sitting to get the big picture and to get the flow of it. It means learning to turn off the um, to-do list mentality. You know, when your reading says you have to read from this verse to that verse and, and you're reading it and in like the fourth verse, there's something amazing and you go, but I can't stop now. I've got to get to this verse. Um, why not read in a way that when actually something jumps out at you, you just camp out there and go, yeah, well, if I don't make it to the end of the reading, it's no, it's no big deal. Um, it's about reading the Bible and, and realise that when you're reading it, you're reading it with the author. Um, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you and he can testify to your spirit when you're reading. And so we read prayerfully as if with the author. Um, it would be amazing, isn't it? I'm, one of the things I really miss in lockdown is the Hay Festival. 
go to the Hay Festival every year. And I love going to the Hay Festival because you can meet authors or you can find authors reading their own books. And there's something about being in the room with the author, hearing the author read the book and then being able to ask them questions. When we read the Bible, the Spirit is with us and we can pray to him. And when lockdown is over or even now over Zoom, um, you can read it with other Christians, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And as a family, read it. And it's about reading it as if you're on the road to Emmaus and you're with Jesus. And you're saying, Jesus, show me this. I, I love the road to Emmaus picture. Jesus just comes alongside us and he walks with us. But we've got to give him time to do that. We've got to be willing to allow him to stop us and point something out to us. And we've got to savour the word because it really is better than the sun. And then obviously, verse 11 to 14, we've also got to submit to the word. Um, this is vital. James 1, you know, we don't want to be like a man who looks in the mirror and then just walks off and forgets what he's like. We need to put this into practice. He says, by them, your servant is warned. Um, we are warned by the scripture sometimes, but in keeping them, there is great reward. And because Jesus has kept them perfectly on our behalf, even a small bit of obedience now for us can bring a reward. It's quite amazing what Jesus has done for us. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Most of my faults are hidden to me. They're not hidden to my family, but they are hidden to me. And the Bible will help me see that. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. I'm sure many of us know that feeling at the moment. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, because that's who we see. When you read the Bible, you don't just see rocks now in creation and go, oh, there must be a great God. You see rocks in creation and go, that's like my Jesus. He is the rock who has saved me. The Bible, as you see Jesus, changes everything. So seek the Lord in his word. Enjoy time uh, with him. Matt, back over to you. Thanks so much, John. Let's, let's just respond briefly in prayer to that, shall we? Um,